0: There's always a special frisson about interviewing someone who really could get you sacked if it all goes pear-shaped. I'm David Jays and I'm at the Royal Academy of Dances, sunny new home in London, to meet its sunny new chief executive, the ebullient Tim Arthur. This is Why Dance Matters, The Royal Academy of Dance podcast. Tim has now been in post for a year. You may have heard our heartfelt conversation with his predecessor, Luke, now Sir Luke, Ritner. Tim is from a younger generation and a dizzyingly varied background. He arrives at the RAD via experience in theatre, in publishing and in finance, working with companies like Time Out and Virgin Money. What inspired that trajectory? And why did a dance and education organisation like the RAD feel like the logical next step? I'm excited to dig into Tim's vision for the RAD, and also into his own rich hinterland, his training as a psychotherapist. It's a heady mix for a chief executive. Oh, and when interviewing someone who can get you sacked, you should always definitely ask them if they've ever been a burlesque performer. Tim, welcome to Why Dance Matters. This is pretty much the end of your first year as the CEO of the Royal Academy of Dance. Congratulations. Thank you. You've survived. The Royal Academy of Dance has survived. (laughs) Yeah. And how has it been? How has that year been? You know what? It has
1: been an amazing year, I think. It's been full of challenge. It's been a huge learning curve for me. But overall, I was thinking about it over the Christmas break. I think it's been an amazing year, really. I've I've loved it. And, And I sort of fall in love with the R.A.D. a bit more with each month as it goes by. It's more complicated than I thought. There's more things that I think we can achieve. I think there's things that we can improve on. But overall, I just think what we do is magical. That's the thing that I've really taken from this year. I've been really lucky this year to travel sort of around the UK and see a lot of schools. But also I've been to South Africa and Zimbabwe and Australia and Canada and Berlin. But it's really energising to go and see our work and to see how far and wide the RAD makes an impact. It's both sort of humbling, but also amazing and just makes me really hungry to build on the sort of legacy, particularly the legacy that Luke left. I think Luke was an amazing CEO, and for 23 years...
0: Now, Sir Luke Ritner. Now, Sir Rittner. Luke.
1: That's right. Sorry, I should refer to him as Sir Luke. <laughs> um, Sir Luke left a fantastic legacy, but I really want it to be a springboard for us to go to the future and to evolve and develop, but also to keep all those amazing things that make the RAD special make people love it as they do.
0: And I know you met a lot of members during the application process, during the interview process, when you were getting to know the RAD before even you were appointed. Seeing it now from the inside during the last 12 months, has it surprised you? Have there been things that you weren't expecting?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> lots. There's lots and lots of things. I mean, as with any organisation, particularly any organisation that's been around for 102 years that it is this year. It has a culture that is fascinating and the way it's developed and the way it sort of organically has its own quirks and whole bits where you find yourself going, oh, that's interesting. Why does it work like that? And people just go, well, that's because that's how it works. And some of them are wonderful. And other ones you think, that's just really strange. There must be a different way of doing that. And then a lot of people go, oh, yeah, probably. But working with the members... That has been one of the greatest joys, actually. One of the things Luke said to me just before he left was always remember we are predominantly, first and foremost, a membership organisation. And actually this first year for me has been about listening to the members. I spend a lot of time out with members and I've loved it. And to every member that has let me come to their studios and talk to me. And the brilliant thing about all our R&D members is nobody's shy about telling me what we should be doing and what we're doing wrong or what we do right. You know, they're, they're very open, but I've loved it. And it has really genuinely informed the decisions I've made, the changes I want to do, the things we want to bring in. It's constantly unfolding in front of me. We just do so much as well. I think that's the other thing is I really didn't know. I mean, even a couple of months into the job, Just the breadth of work that we do, the amount of lives we impact. And there is a challenge with that. And the challenge is how do you tell that story? And that's still an interesting challenge for me because when somebody says to me, oh, you're at the Royal Academy of Dance, what do you do? And to sum up in one sentence what the RAD is, is actually really difficult because we're a lot of things. But we do need to find that one-liner. Have you got a kind of first pass at that one-liner yet? I mean... The only reason I'm pausing is because I'm, re- I'm working really closely with the marketing team and and definitely the development team as well, the fundraising team on that. If I say one now on the podcast, I'm fairly sure in about three weeks' time, I'll get this knock on my door of going, you know, that's not what we agreed to. <laughs> that, wasn't the, that wasn't the exact language. So it's in process. It is in process. And it is about that thing of... I mean, it is around that idea of inspiring the world to dance and it is around that concept that we exist to help people with their health and happiness, that kind of well-being idea, which is something I'm really, really keen on. And also that idea of, you know, we were founded 102 years ago with the idea that we were there to improve the teaching standards of dance. And what we've got to do is sort of combine all those things that dance is for everybody And everybody can be a success and everyone can be excellent, but it's at what level they become excellent. I just have to get that down into a really
0: snappy one line. I just, there will be a lift. How hard can it be? How hard (laughs) can it be? You know, how hard can it be? And we'll dig into some of that direction of travel in a bit. But just to take you right back, the arts have always been a part of your life, even from childhood. Is that right? Yes, very
1: much so. My mum and dad were musicians. My mum was also a famous TV presenter in the 70s. Tony um, Arthur was t- to an was icon. People of a certain age now will say, oh, I grew up with your mum. And I was like, so did I. <laughs> Weirdly, I never saw you around the house. But thank you. <laughs> um, no, my mum was, uh, yeah, she was uh, on Playaway and Play School for people in the UK, the sort of popular children's and light entertainment programmes. And they were playwrights and musicians. And that is the environment I grew up in. And I grew up in an environment that always thought it was special, that it wasn't ever taken for granted. It was always explained to me that there was something magical about interacting with the arts, that what it gave to you changed the person you were. And so that's really stuck with me. And in my early career, I was a playwright and theatre director. So that's where I came from. I had my own... Drama school as well, called tub Thumping,
0: and I loved that
1: experience. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons that I quite like going into our dance schools, is because when I go in, I really feel it. It takes me right do back. A
0: proustian rush. A I do. I walk get, in. It's
1: exactly. It. I get that feeling of like I know how this works. And you see the parents delivering the kids, and you see those kids just looking really excited. And the only problem is I can't teach
0: dance. That's the only thing, because I I sit there going, I would love
1: to teach a class. That would be fabulous. That would take me right back.
0: Was dance part of the mix in your childhood? Was that alongside the music and the drama? The dance that was
1: part of the mix, my parents were folklorists as well, by the way, I should say. And so the dance that I did as a kid was I did Morris dancing. I did clog dancing. I did do like tap and modern but actually, there was a lot of traditional forms. There was I uh, thing called mummers plays as well, which are sort of traditional English forms that had dances in it. I did a lot of that.
0: Did you wassail? I have, I have wassailed
1: <laughs> from time vital. to time. I've wassailed. <laughs> yes, I don't like to brag, but I wassailed a bit. So there was dance around, you know, and and my parents, when they were directing shows or writing shows that they were in, they were always sort of musicals. Actually, so there was a lot of dance involved in that. He was always around as part of the mix.
0: And you mentioned that you started your career in theatre, and one of the things you did was leading a company called Cardboard Citizens, who do amazing work, still exist, still do amazing work. How was that experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a real privilege to work with Cardboard Citizens. So I joined Cardboard Citizens as an associate director, and over a period of three or four years, I then became the CEO. It was started by a man called Adrian Jackson. Is he a sir now as well? Is everyone becoming a sir? Is it just me that's not? What's going on? Um, By the end of the podcast, this could have changed. It could have changed. He's definitely got some honour, and so he should do. It's an amazing company. It works with homeless people right across the UK, and it uses theatre and the arts in general as a sort of vehicle of change, a sort of transformative vehicle. It's quite unique because they create professional companies with homeless actors and it gives them normally like a six-month acting contract, like a proper full professional contract and that in itself can transform those lives of the actors but also does workshops and takes its performances out into homeless spaces. So be that homes or shelters or all sorts of things. It was a group of people I have not worked with. And
0: presumably people with a lot of stuff going on in their lives quite apart from the theatre you were making together. Yes,
1: 100%. You were dealing with people with very complex needs, often multiple complex needs. For a lot of them, it was a sanctuary. They would come into our workshops. We would work out of Crisis Skylight in the East End, which people will know from Crisis for Christmas, that kind of thing. It's They have a centre there, an art centre, and it's beautiful. And I used to have a workshop there most nights a week. And our actors would come sometimes straight off the streets straight in and for two or three hours they would be transported to somewhere else and it was a safe space I think for them an inspirational space for them and it allowed them to explore the possibility of change as well that was really key it was you know looking at the decisions that had been made the things that happened to their lives and then how do you overcome them it wasn't psychodrama it very much wasn't that it's a process called forum theater which is about looking at change and how you do that within communities it was life changing for me. I can remember going into it thinking, all right, this is what I'm going to give to this group of people. This is my skill set that I will give. And I did genuinely come away thinking, I think I've taken a lot more from this. It was quite humbling hearing the stories and then getting opportunity to turn those stories into, into pieces of drama. It was sort of, I think, the first job where I really went, actually, I have to work somewhere that has values and values that make a difference and that are about transformation and about change and where that is really key. That's something coming back into the arts here at the Royal Academy that really, really resonates with me. And that I think that's something that we do really well and that we can continue to do.
0: And as you say, you're coming back into the arts because you have had the most interestingly varied career and you have also worked in publishing with Time Out, you've worked in finance with Virgin Money. Which of those was the best preparation for coming into the RAD?
1: You know what? It's really weird. All of them have given me skills, I think, or or I've picked stuff up or I've worked with people that I think are really valuable to who I am now, me personally. But But also to the job here. Definitely, my early career in theatre absolutely sort of formed my ideas of working in the arts and why that matters actually, and why that makes a difference, and why we should always advocate for it. But then working at Time Out was a fascinating period of time. I loved Time Out. I still love Time Out. I think it's an amazing organisation. I had to grow up and learn a lot of management skills during that period of time. I sort of quite quickly went through the ranks at time out. I didn't start as a CEO. I started as comedy editor actually running the comedy section and I was a journalist. Um, it's an obvious and, progression. You know how it works, <laughs> of course. You start writing that comedy and then you're running the company. But I learned loads there about management. It was owned by private equity at the time as well. So I had to learn about what that meant from a business point of view. And then going into finance was a totally different shift. And I wouldn't have gone into finance. The truth is if it hadn't been for Dame Jane Ann Gardia, who was the CEO of Virgin Money, she's a genuinely inspirational lady, and she ran that bank with a true sense of values. She had a saying that was the sort of motto of the bank, which was everyone better off. And she absolutely believed that banking, if done properly, was a sort of noble craft that actually you were there to support people through difficult times and you were there to celebrate with them throughout the good times of their lives. But it was really important. And she really sold this to me, the importance of the role that finance has in people's lives. It can be something that people are absolutely petrified of. It can scare them. It can become a preoccupation for them. It gives them stress or it can be an enabler. And she genuinely wanted to build a bank that cared for people, not in any lip service way, she didn't want it to be about nice adverts. For her, it was, how do you actually prove that you care about people? And that became really inspiring for me, where I could watch somebody who was running a huge business, and it was billions of pounds you dealing with, but she would make decisions based on her values. The senior team would sit around and somebody would say, oh, this is a new product, we've got this coming out, and you know we can make whatever it is. For me, it was eye-watering money at the time. <laughs> and Jane Ann would say... OK, yeah, but how does it make everyone better off? And if the response was, well, we can make more money, that wasn't going to wash. It had to be right for the customers. It had to be right for the shareholders, our partners, everybody, and society in general. And just working with her for that period of time really inspired me that you can run a business with a heart. You can run a commercial business with heart as well. She used to call it compassionate capitalism, I think was the term that she used. And for her, making money was... And not an end in itself. It was, if we're successful, we can do more for people. And so that period of time was really influential
0: for me. And now you're here at the Royal Academy of Dance. And again, I guess you're grappling with some of the same questions, it sounds like, from your previous careers, including how you make the RAD matter to all of its members who are so diverse in terms of their geographical spread, 80-something countries, people who are teachers, who are students, who are dance enthusiasts, who teach in huge dance schools or in tiny dance schools, in big cities or in quite remote areas. How do you find a thread that connects all of those very different memberships?
1: It's a really big challenge because you've got all of the demographics that you've described, all the different contexts that the Royal Academy can land in. And then you have, on top of that, the context of a rapidly changing world as well. You have children and students, not not just children, actually, but but people of all ages, because that's one thing I'm really passionate about, that dance, particularly with the RAD, that dance should be for your whole life. But the world is changing. Behaviors are changing. Children, particularly, their attention span is changing. And I hear this a lot in studios. And actually, post-COVID, there's been a, a change in behaviours. There's a lot more mental health issues. There's a now real difficulty because of the cost of living crisis on parents, parents who might have taken their children to dance less than three times a week or four times a week, now really either can't afford to do it at all or will take it down to once a week. We live in a very rapidly evolving and changing world. And one of the things that I think the R.E.D. has to do is become agile to that, to stay relevant. If we are to stay relevant, if we are to be able to fulfill some of that mission of inspiring the world to dance, of making a case for why it really, really matters that dance exists and makes a difference to people's lives, we have to be able to adapt with the times. We can't say, well, we've always done this. This is how we do it. We've always done it for 102 years and that's it, because that is the way that companies go under actually so for me the way we do it though is going back to our values it's going back to what we stand for and then being really certain on those so actually we're doing a piece of work at the moment which is really about that is looking at what are our values what do we stand for how do we articulate that and then how do we make sure that however we decide to move forward Do we do more digital content than we currently have? Do we look at creating programs for a more diverse audience to make sure that we're really fulfilling that idea that everybody can dance? In those ways, we have to do it through that lens of, we're doing this because this is what we believe. This is what our values are. These are the behaviors that we would like to put out into the world. This is the difference and impact we'd like to make. But then also to be flexible enough, I think, to allow that to be interpreted as it lands in different cultures and different places. I had an amazing experience this year. One of my favourite experiences, and I've had a lot of really great high points this year. But one of them was in South Africa. I was in Cape Town, and I went to this incredible theatre, actually, which is right in the middle of a township. And I got to watch this incredible class. It was just one of the most beautiful ballet classes I've ever seen full of boys and girls, looked all looked immaculate. They were just wonderful. But what I did realize is that the context that those children are working in and their lives is very, very different to the lives of somebody potentially in certain areas of the UK, say. And actually we have to be flexible enough to work out how do we make sure that our programs and the things we have allow every child or every person who's interacting with us to thrive. And if that means that there has to be slight differences or we allow the local knowledge as well to inform our practice, I think that's a brilliant thing. So it is a sort of combination of having core values, but also being flexible enough to learn and humble enough, I think, as well, actually, to learn from other people and let that inform us as well and inform our own practice. It's not an easy trick. As you say, it's like, especially when you say it's for everybody. I mean, that's that's 8 billion people around the world, potentially. That's a lot of people yes. to kind of go, Come on, you know, you, <laughs> you like to dance. Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and talking of ideas that are difficult to extend to everybody, one of the things you did when you arrived at the RAD, which I thought was really interesting, was dig into the Academy's motto, its Latin motto, which translates as health and happiness as you've already mentioned well-being as part of that and also happiness such a difficult thing to define such an individual thing to define in terms of an organization like the RAD what's a happy organization been to you that motto that we have on our
1: coat of arms which so says Felicitas" health and happiness for me has been a driving inspiration for how I want to lead the company if you can't have it inwardly, if your own colleagues don't feel a sense of that, it's very, very difficult to then mirror that out to the rest of the world. And that is a challenge at the moment because we live in a really difficult time. Post-COVID, I think people have found it difficult to come back to work. We have a lot big change process that's going on at the RAD. Financially, we are doing OK, but we need to be really, really careful as we navigate through the cost of living crisis, I think. And with any culture change, sometimes organisations can find that difficult. But for me, what I would like to establish, and I still think we've got a long way to go, I'm I'm totally honest about it, I think we've got a long way to go, is to create an environment where people come to work and they can flourish. Flourishing is a phrase that I'm really interested in, rather than happiness, I suppose. One of the things with with happiness is sometimes it can be seen as a pressure or can be seen as laughing. Whereas actually, I think true happiness for people is more about contentment. And the building blocks of contentment can be about challenge. They can be acceptance of pain sometimes. They can be all sorts of things. But in a work context, I think for me, it's about how do you set up an environment where people can succeed? How can they achieve? How can they feel part of something? How can they feel aligned with the mission of the business so they have a sense of purpose? So it doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that people are always happy. It doesn't mean that... There's not tensions, because sometimes out of tensions can be creative output, actually. But it's coming up with an environment where there's progression as well, all those kind of things. And some of the structures, and it's very common within a lot of big institutions that have been around for a long way, actually are set up to stop some of that, to stop progression. One of the things we're looking at, I'm really honest about it, is any decision that gets made at the moment has about 10 people that have to sign it off, right. you know, and, it's, uh, yeah. and it's, it doesn't give a sense of autonomy or accountability or that sense that one person can make a massive difference. And I really believe that. In the companies I've worked when it's worked really well, everybody, no matter who it is, feels like if they've got a great idea, the organisation is able to take that run with it and grow. And that gives an amazing sense of agency, But I think we're away from that with the full knowledge that we're coming off two or three bad years. Mm. And I've noticed I have a lot of friends in lots of different sectors as well. And a lot of people find their colleagues are struggling. There are mental health problems. You know, there's a sort of epidemic that is sort of largely ignored. Mm. You know, we got the vaccination, then we move on without really taking into account what those two years have done to us. We're seeing it a lot with our students. We see it, I think, within our colleagues as well. And we have to somehow acknowledge that, count for it, and then manage our way through that. But again, these are tricky. These are the things that keep me up at night, actually. Culture within the RAD and how we create those opportunities for people to flourish is one of the things that I really, not just, I don't worry about, but it's something that's really a high priority for me. There's a business formula for companies that when you come into this forming, norming, storming. Do you know these? When you come in and you sort of you sort of form a new team, you pull them together. They then start norming where they, they're starting to perform well and then they get to a storming phase where they're doing brilliantly. And then there's another phase after that called mourning where it sort of breaks down a bit. Normally people leave because they're really successful and then you have to rebuild again. And we need to get to that storming phase. We need to build a company so we're really flying. But we can only do that with the talent that we have inside the RAD right around the world. I think that's really really key. It's very very easy and I'm very aware of it that when you're in this beautiful new headquarters we've got in London you see the world from the inside out effectively. You're seeing the lens of oh yeah, we're you know, we've got this great building with loads of people here and that's what the RAD is and that is not what the RAD is. The RAD, if you were just look at our colleagues, we have as many colleagues now outside of the UK as we do inside it. But actually, if you think what the RAD is, the RAD is really happening, which is what a beautiful thing. It happens every minute of every day somewhere in the world, and it's happening in studios. That is where the RAD is. We, you know, headquarters and all the staff are just facilitators. We should be enabling that work to happen. That's what we do.
0: At the same time, as you're thinking about that huge global perspective, you're also training to be a psychotherapist. Yes. Which is a very different lens, one that's much more personal, person by person, I guess also involves a lot of looking within yourself. Does that inform the work you do here? Or is that A refuge for you where you can think about something completely different on a a very different scale.
1: I have to be like 100% honest, it utterly informs everything. It's very difficult, I think, to do a training like that. I'm still in the training, I'm three years in, three years of of a four year training. But through that process of learning, it's very difficult to unsee. I think I'm very different to the way I was before. And one of the things that I'm hoping that I'm working on myself is that when I came into this job, I wanted to do this job as fully me. It's very easy, actually, I think, in in certain positions. I think we all do it, actually, no matter what we do, when you come to work, where you put a mask on and you've got, this is work, Tim, and this is home, Tim, and this is, you know. And I think over the years, I'd become very good at that. I had a very strong mask. And I wanted to come into this job and go, actually, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to see how that lands. Not all myself, do you mean that? Nobody's gonna see me on my pajamas or whatever I get up to at home. Do you mean there's a I have a slight sense of self-control? But I did want to come in and be authentically me. I know that sounds, I know how naff that sounds when I say it out loud, but it was really important to me. I wanted to do this job on my terms as me, which then there was loads of work behind that. When you're going through the training, you have to have four years worth of psychotherapy as well. So you do do a lot of, I was gonna say navel gazing, but it's not, it's really self-awareness. And I wanted to bring that into the job. I try not to. Bring it into my everyday. Sometimes people come into my office. I think when we've got one to ones, and they think it's going to be a therapy session. <laughs> and it, it genuinely isn't. But often people sort of worry about that. They hear right. a, you know you hear you're a training to be a psychotherapist, and they just assume that whenever you say you're going. Oh, I see. So, so tell me about your childhood. <laughs> you know that is a is a very different space. It's not it's not what I do, but it's informed me massively, and I hope it's made me a better manager and a better person, and and I hope more relatable to people much more empathetic to where people are coming from. Sometimes that's not always a good thing by the way. Sometimes you want a decision to be made. Like sometimes you spend there going, I see your side and I see your side and that's valid and that's valid. And sometimes Um, people want a a firm, clear direction. Yeah, they want the, you know, or they want somebody to say, no, you're wrong actually. (laughs) Whereas you can, if you're not careful, you can end up spending a lot of time going, but I really understand why they think that. You know, I've been very lucky at this point in my life. I'm 52 and I still feel like I'm learning, that I'm excited, that there's massive possibilities, both for me personally, but in the professions that I'm working in as well. So it's lucky, isn't it? It's good.
0: And so I don't want to say in five years time, but in the future, as things unfold, what does Tim Arthur's RAD look like?
1: In five years time, it's to have a really inclusive, diverse organization that celebrates dance probably in all its forms. I know we're very ballet focused. That's very core to us. It will always be core. Every time I mention this, sometimes people get worried that it means
0: you're taking the ballet away.
1: I'm absolutely not. If anything, it's about just enhancing that and understanding that I think there are many routes into dance. There's many pathways that people can take. In fact, we had Stephen McRae did an event for us. It was a members event, actually. One of the members said, how do we get more boys into yeah. ballet? And he said, um, don't start with ballet." He said he started out as a tap dancer and he went in. And actually for me, what I don't want to do is limit the chances that people have to be exposed to the difference dance will make in their lives. So I would like us to broaden what we do, to think about the impact that we have and to spread that passion and that excellence and expertise that we have right around the world. Yesterday I was talking to somebody who works for us. He was talking about radical generosity And I really liked it. It was a really nice phrase. And I'm really interested in that aspect of how radically generous can we be with our knowledge, our experience, our expertise, and pass that around the world. And what difference could it make? I have quite lofty, in five years, I have quite lofty ideas for, (laughs) you know, how much we can change the world. But I think if you don't have that, if you don't have a real essence or passion for taking everything we've become, I mean, we are an amazing organisation that is already all around the world. Yeah. But I just the passion that I want more people. I want more people to experience it. I want us to stay relevant. I think we will be more digital. I just think that is inevitable because I think that's a way of accessibility for a lot of people, different ways of interacting. But underneath it, the core will always be what it has been, the core values, the core sense of who we are.
0: Kim, you said that you haven't had a lot of dance experience, but I feel that it would be remiss not to mention your brief and spectacular career (laughs) in burlesque. While you were at Time Out, I think there may have been a burlesque competition. Somebody mentioned it to me the other day
1: and said, you never mention your experience in dance. (laughs) Um, But I think I mention it all the time. (laughs) So I did, when I was at Time Out, I had the pleasure and privilege of entering something called the Male Tournament of Tees, which is the UK's, well, I like to think, preeminent dance competition for male burlesque. It's the Wimbledon of male burlesque. the Oscars, if you like, (laughs) and... um, and it was fascinating. It actually came about because I didn't listen properly. So the cabaret editor used to sit next to me, a lady called Simone, who I loved a bit. So every now and again, we would do each other favors and write about each other's areas. So if I couldn't do something, she'd write something about comedy. And if she couldn't do it, I'd write about the cabaret. And she came over and said, Tim, will you enter the male tournament of teas for me? And I thought, <laughs> she said, would I write about the male tournament of teas? So I said, yes, of course I will. Yeah, I didn't even know what it was, but I said, yeah, why not? Sure. And then about an hour later, she came back. Oh, my God, they're so excited. You're going to do it. <laughs> and I said, but I'm going to do what? And they said, you're going to enter the male tournament of teas. And I said, I'm going to what now? And she said, you can't back out. They've already, I've already told them you're doing it. And I've got you a choreographer and I've got you somebody who's going to do your music. And one of the things about me is that I do like a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I do say yes more often than I say no. And so I went on this sort of rather weird odyssey for about eight weeks, I think. And I worked with a group called Bearlesque basically every night for sort of eight weeks. I had to go and they would do the choreography for the routine and drill me in at what point what had to come off and what you
0: do with it. And it was brilliant. And you don't seem an especially shy person, but how was that experience? Ah, now, I might not seem a shy person, but I have... Re- and, and why, in the
1: end, I was really proud of it is I have real body image issues and always have done. I've had loads of issues about how I look, my weight, and all sorts of things. And the thing about that competition and doing that was you had to absolutely confront it. There was no way not to. At the end, it was just me in a bowler hat. And strategically placed. Yes, 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 very, very strategically placed. You you are literally vulnerable and exposed. It was a real journey for me of facing all the insecurities I had about myself, about what that would be like, about all the negative stories that I told myself, you know, about the way I look, about all sorts of things. And I did it with a bunch of guys who were just brilliant. They were just fantastic. There is something that's slightly horrifying about hearing your own mum shout at the top of a voice, that's my boy, get him off. So <laughs> that is, that will haunt me for a long time. Um, and my brother after, my brother came as well. And when I saw him afterwards, he had this sort of thousand yard stare. And he, and he gave me this hug and said, I, I love you please don't ever do that again. So um, so it was a short
0: career. But, this uh, is why therapy exists, isn't it,
1: really? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I think I put nearly all my family now probably have to have therapy after that. But it was a brilliant experience. And I came second in the end. So I, I can claim to be Britain's second best male ballet dancer in 2009. Perfect. And I got beaten, by the way, by a double act called what? Brokeback Cowboys. <laughs> and they were gym professional gymnasts. Is that even fair? Uh, I think that's a different category.
0: You were totally robbed. Mm, you are the yeah. plucky Andy Murray who faced both Federer and Nadal. Except,
1: not fair. That's exactly how I see it.
0: So, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I don't like
1: it. I don't, it hasn't stayed with me. Clearly so it's not. not, it's not gonna, gonna You're certainly
0: bad. not someone who bears a grudge. No, not at all. <laughs> and I hope they're doing very well. <laughs> <they are. laughs> yeah. Tim, you have suffered enough at our hands, but I can't let you go without the final question, which is... Why does dance matter to you? Dance
1: matters to me because I think it is an almost unique art form because of the way it is an embodied art form. And there's something amazing about the combination of cognitive experience and an embodied experience, which I think allows people to connect to themselves and to others in a really unique way, And for that reason, I think it's really important. We have danced for the whole of our history. Humans have danced. It absolutely fundamentally matters. How we interact with rhythms, how we interact with our own bodies, how we interact with others, and the rituals around that are really fundamental and core to us. And I think if we neglect that need, which I think is a fundamental need, we do it at our peril. And there is something about dance, which I think keys into what it means to be human. And that's why I think it's so beneficial for us. So that's why I think dance matters.
0: Tim, it has just been such a blast, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I began this conversation wondering how to get a handle on someone who has worked in so many wildly different fields. But I've emerged with a strong sense of the connecting thread through Tim's career. And it's a solid ethical core that he traces from community theatre through to corporate finance and brings into the RAD. He believes that art not only can change lives, but that it should. And I suspect a lot of RAD teachers and listeners to this podcast will feel the same. How about you? We always love to hear why dance matters to you, so please get in touch. The RAD socials, plus links to its work, are in our show notes. And go on. Subscribe, like and review the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Our guest today was Tim Arthur. Why Dance Matters is made with the RAD team of Neve Carey-Furness and Katie Hagen. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our producer is Sarah Miles who could also get me sacked, so i'm saying nothing i'm david jays take care see you soon